Christina Rossetti, Goblin Market. Christina Rossetti was one of four children of an exiled Italian poet and the sister of Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Their mother was the sister of John Polidori, who was Lord Byron's personal physician. Christina was not given to some of the character weaknesses and addictions that beset her famous brother, but she was probably influenced by him and certainly by the pre-Raphaelite movement of which he was a founder. She wrote love poetry, but did not marry, despite three offers of marriage. She broke off an engagement when her fiancé converted to Catholicism and rejected at least one of her other suitors for religious reasons. She is a bit of a puzzle for us, and scholars still debate the relationship between her life and her art. One of her poems is the text for the popular Christmas carol, in the bleak midwinter. But by far her most famous work is Goblin Market, which brought her critical acclaim. Joyce Carol Oates noted its breathless rhythms and eccentric rhymes. Goblin Market was published as a kind of fairy tale, although there is some question as to whether Rossetti herself regarded it as a children's story. Her public and private statements about this seem to disagree. Although such a poem might seem to us to be quite unsuitable for children, we should note that many Victorian fairy tales and children's stories were quite dark and provocative by today's standards, even though they usually featured moralized endings. The poem begins with two sisters, Laura and Lizzie, who hear the goblins crying every morning for them to buy their orchard fruits, which are described very richly and sensuously. The poem begins, Morning and evening, maids heard the goblins cry. Come by, our orchard fruits, come by, come by. Apples and quinces, lemons and oranges, plump unpecked cherries, melons and raspberries, bloom down-cheeked peaches, swart-headed mulberries, wild free-born cranberries, crabapples, dewberries, pineapples, blackberries, apricots, strawberries, all ripe together in summer weather, morns that pass by, fair eaves that fly, come by, come by, our grapes fresh from the vine, pomegranates full and fine, dates and sharp bullaces, rare pears and green gauges, damsons and bilberries, taste them and try, currants and gooseberries, bright fire-like barberries, figs to fill your mouth, citrons from the south, sweet to tongue and sound to eye, come by, come by. These are rather mouth-watering descriptions, somewhat reminiscent of the lush sounds of the exotic fruits and spices in John Keats's The Eve of St. Agnes, or in some of Tennyson's poetic language. Of the two sisters in Goblin Market, Lizzie is the more restrained, warning Laura not to listen to the goblin men, but Laura is more curious and is drawn to them. Lie close, Laura said, pricking up her golden head. We must not look at goblin men. We must not buy their fruits. Who knows upon what soil they fed their hungry, thirsty roots? She also warns her sister, Laura, Laura, you should not peep at goblin men. Lizzie covered up her eyes, covered close, lest they should look. 
Laura reared her glossy head and whispered like the restless brook, Look, Lizzie, look, Lizzie, down the glen tramp little men. One hauls a basket, one bears a plate, one lugs a golden dish of many pounds weight. How fair the vine must grow, whose grapes are so luscious. How warm the wind must blow through those fruit bushes. No, said Lizzie, no, no, no. Their offers should not charm us. Their evil gifts would harm us. The goblin men themselves are described as being quite grotesque. The first edition of Goblin Market and Other Poems was illustrated by Dante Gabriel Rossetti, and his rendering emphasizes their animal strangeness, described in the poem this way. One had a cat's face, one whisked a tail, one tramped at a rat's pace, one crawled like a snail. One like a wombat prowled, obtuse and furry. One like a raytail tumbled hurry-scurry. These are rather nasty-sounding creatures. Laura begins to succumb to her curiosity about the goblin men and wishes to buy some of their fruits, though she has no money. This, however, is no obstacle, as they answer her. You have much gold upon your head, they answered altogether. Buy from us with a golden curl. She clipped a precious golden lock. She dropped a tear more rare than pearl, then sucked their fruit globes fair or red, sweeter than honey from the rock, stronger than man-rejoicing wine, clearer than water flowed that juice. She never tasted such before. How should it cloy with length of use? She sucked and sucked and sucked the more, fruits which that unknown orchard bore. She sucked until her lips were sore, then flung the emptied rinds away, but gathered up one kernel stone, and knew not was it night or day, as she turned home alone. Laura, having had a taste of this fruit, wishes for more. She tells her sister, I ate and ate my fill, yet my mouth waters still. Tomorrow night I will buy more, and kissed her. There is a wrinkle, however. The next day, Laura is anxious to go out and buy more fruits from the goblin men, but she can no longer hear them, though Lizzie still can. Now there is a principle of separation between the two. Lizzie with an open heart, Laura in an absent dream, one content one sick in part, one warbling for the mere bright day's delight, one longing for the night. Now Laura is caught up in desire to obtain more of the fruits, very much like an addiction. Lizzie grows more concerned for her sister, having warned her about a woman named Jeanie. Do you not remember Jeanie, how she met them in the moonlight, took their gifts, both choice and many, ate their fruits and wore their flowers, plucked from bowers where summer ripens at all hours, but ever in the noonlight she pined and pined away, sought them by night and day, found them no more, but dwindled and grew gray, then fell with the first snow. While to this day no grass will grow where she lies low, I planted daisies there a year ago that never blow. Obviously, Jeanie succumbed to a similar unquenchable desire for the fruits after she ate them, and she wasted away. Now, no grass or flowers will grow upon her grave. 
the poem gives us a rather frank description of the desire that Laura feels. So crept to bed and lay silent till Lizzie slept, then sat up in a passionate yearning and gnashed her teeth for balked desire and wept as if her heart would break. This goes on for some time, and we begin to see the signs that Laura may be doomed to suffer the same fate as the unfortunate genie. Her hair grew thin and gray. She dwindled as the fair full moon doth turn to swift decay and burn her fire away. As the poem goes on, Laura grows ever more listless. She no more swept the house, tended the fowls or cows, fetched honey, kneaded cakes of wheat, brought water from the brook, but sat down listless in the chimney nook and would not eat. Lizzie can't bear to see her sister suffering this way. She thought of Jeanie in her grave, who should have been a bride, but who for joys brides hoped to have, fell sick and died in her gay prime, in earliest winter time, with the first glazing rhyme, with the first snowfall of crisp winter time, till Laura dwindling seemed knocking at death's door. So Lizzie decides she must do something to try to save her sister. Then Lizzie weighed no more, better and worse, but put a silver penny in her purse, kissed Laura, crossed the heath with clumps of firs at twilight, halted by the brook, and for the first time in her life began to listen and look. Lizzie seeks out the goblin men once again, we have the grotesque animal-like descriptions and offers to buy their fruit for a silver penny, but they are not interested in her money. They try to get her to eat the fruit with them, and when she refuses, they began to scratch their pates, no longer wagging, purring, but visibly demurring, grunting and snarling. One called her proud, cross-grained, uncivil. Their tones waxed loud, their looks were evil, lashing their tails they trod and hustled her, elbowed and jostled her, clawed with their nails, barking, mewing, hissing, mocking, tore her gown and soiled her stocking, twitched her hair out by the roots, stamped upon her tender feet, held her hands and squeezed their fruits against her mouth to make her eat. This is a rather graphic description that is disturbingly reminiscent of a sexual assault, as the goblin men try to force Lizzie to eat the fruit, but she continues to resist. Though the goblins cuffed and caught her, coaxed and fought her, bullied and besought her, scratched her, pinched her black as ink, kicked and knocked her, mauled and mocked her, Lizzie uttered not a word, would not open lip from lip, lest they should cram a mouthful in, but laughed in heart to feel the drip of juice that syruped all her face, and lodged in dimples of her chin and streaked her neck, which quaked like curd. The goblin men are smashing the fruits against her face, an attempted violation of sorts, but Lizzie refuses to open their lips until they finally depart. Some writhed into the ground, some dived into the brook with ring and ripple, some scudded on the gale without a sound, some vanished in the distance. Lizzie goes home and tells her sister, Laura, 
Did you miss me? Come and kiss me. Never mind my bruises. Hug me. Kiss me. Suck my juices. Squeezed from goblin fruits for you. Goblin pulp and goblin dew. Eat me. Drink me. Love me. Laura, make much of me. For your sake, I have braved the glen and had to do with goblin merchant men. At first, Laura is quite concerned that her sister will suffer the same fate as she. She says, Lizzie, Lizzie, have you tasted for my sake the fruit forbidden? Must your light like mine be hidden, your young life like mine be wasted, undone in mine undoing, and ruined in my ruin? But despite her concern for Lizzie, Laura is so much in need of the fruit that she clung about her sister, kissed and kissed and kissed her. Tears once again refreshed her shrunken eyes, dropping like rain after long, sultry drought. Shaking with aguish fear and pain, she kissed and kissed her with a hungry mouth. Her lips began to scorch. That juice was wormwood to her tongue. She loathed the feast. Writhing as one possessed, she leaped and sung, rent all her robe and wrung her hands in lamentable haste and beat her breast. Her locks streamed like the torch borne by a racer at full speed. Swift fire spread through her veins, knocked at her heart, met the fire smoldering there and overbore its lesser flame. She gorged on bitterness without a name, Ah, fool to choose such part of soul-consuming care. She fell at last, pleasure past and anguish past. Is it death or is it life? And all that night, Laura lies seemingly near death, watched over by her sister. And in the morning, Laura awoke us from a dream, laughed in the innocent old way, hugged Lizzie, but not twice or thrice. Her gleaming locks showed not one thread of gray. Her breath was sweet as May, and light danced in her eyes. Lizzie's enduring all the abuse heaped upon her by the goblin men, in which they smashed their fruits on her face, and subsequently allowing Laura to lick all the fruit from her face, burns Laura like fire but has apparently burned out whatever dark power existed in the fruit. In effect, Laura has regained her innocence. She has gone from innocence to experience and back to innocence again. At the very end, the poem abruptly moves forward. Days, weeks, months, and years afterwards, when both were wives with children of their own, their mother hearts beset with fears, their lives bound up in tender lives. Lara would call the little ones and tell them of her early prime, those pleasant days long gone of not returning time. Would talk about the haunted glen, the wicked quaint fruit merchant men, their fruits like honey to the throat, but poison in the blood. Men sell not such in any town would tell them how her sister stood in deadly peril to do her good and win the fiery antidote, then joining hands to little hands would bid them cling together, for there is no friend like a sister in calm or stormy weather to cheer one on the tedious way 
to fetch one if one goes astray, to lift one if one totters down, to strengthen whilst one stands. End quote. At the end of the poem, we are telescoped forward in time. The goblin men are gone now, and the two are wives and mothers. There are children, though curiously we never see the husbands, and the poem ends on a note of celebration for the love of sisters. This is quite a remarkable poem, and it has enjoyed a great deal of critical attention in recent years. It is a favorite of feminist critics for its depiction of female solidarity in the face of masculine aggression, of Marxist critics for its critique of the capitalist marketplace, of queer theorists for its depiction of transgressive love, ultimately domesticated by marriage and children. It has also been read as a meditation on drug addiction. The explicit scene in which Laura kisses the juices of the fruits from Lizzie's mouth and face has sometimes been interpreted as a lesbian love story and sometimes as an allegory of the Eucharist, with Lizzie having previously suffered physical abuse in an act of sacrifice for Laura's redemption, that abuse being reminiscent of the crucifixion of Christ, complete with mockery and beatings. Whatever the interpretation, Lizzie's endurance of this attack and bringing the juices back for Laura to taste is redemptive. The juices are bitter and burning to Laura because she has sampled the fruit previously, but it's a fiery antidote that ultimately restores her. And what of the fruit itself? It, too, has been interpreted a number of different ways, as representing illicit drugs, as original sin, as sexual desire, as redemption, or as the fruits of capitalism. Goblin Market is a remarkable poem that invites a number of provocative readings.